This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Decode DC, TED Talks, Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Activism from Best of the Left, and Economic Update. Today, a tale as old as America itself. Probably older, to tell you the truth. And actually, what we're really going to tell you is the tale of the tale. How we got this one particular story so deeply ingrained in us that we believe it, still, even when it's become mostly myth. This story is the American dream. The tale of the self-made millionaire, the old yarn that says you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps alone. This story cuts so deep in America, it makes complete political opposites sound like brothers. That here in America, our success should depend not on accident of birth, but the strength of our work ethic. My great-grandfather, like many, came to this country in search of the American dream. He arrived with nothing. Not a penny. That's how the daughter of a factory worker is CEO of America's largest automaker. He found the American dream. How the son of a barkeep is Speaker of the House. Success was not based on who you were, but what you did. That was Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, a Republican libertarian, mixed in with President Barack Obama, a Democrat. They even used the same words. To be sure, the bootstraps myth is all mixed up in pop culture, too. Think about the Jeffersons. Or Fievel in An American Tale. America. What a place. What a place. place. Yes, sir. Step off the boat and into prosperity. Oh, and then there's that Will Smith movie when he's a homeless man and then becomes a stockbroker. Don't ever let somebody tell you you can't do something. And The Great Gatsby, practically all of Walt Disney, you get the picture. The basic tenet of this story is this. In America, everyone has the same opportunity to make it. Yes, we're born in different places with different backgrounds. But in America, your past doesn't determine your future. With a keen mind and hard work, anyone can pull themselves up by their bootstraps. Here's the problem. It's not true. Where you come from does matter. That playing field, it's tilted. In fact, for some groups, it's beyond a tilt. It's a steep climb. Bootstraps might actually be the right title for this story. There's a kind of a deep irony to it because pulling yourself up by your bootstraps is actually impossible. The phrase used to mean trying to do something impossible. Now, we believe it. At least we want to. 
After all, it is the American dream. It was part of the whole point of breaking away from a country like my old country, where <laughs> we have an inherited head of state still. This is Richard Reeves, originally from England, now a scholar at the Brookings Institution in Washington. Reeves is interested in the American dream and where it came from. Looking at the, the history of the Declaration of Independence, I discovered that Jefferson originally wrote that all men are created equal and independent. Those two words were eventually taken out. But this idea is at the heart of America's idea of itself. And so I see the Declaration of Independence as not only the Declaration of National Independence from my, my old country, um, but also a declaration of kind of the sorts of people that would be in that society. It was a declaration of independent people. That's a big part of the so-called American experiment, that men, and now women, have self-determination. We aren't who we are because of family ties or social class, but because of what we choose. Here, you can make something of yourself. Just think about that phrase for a moment. Is that It's very individualistic, um, but it's also very meritocratic, very egalitarian in the sense that it's like we're against anything hereditary. So I think it's been there from the founding, this, this idea that individuals can rise or make something of themselves. Reeves isn't a historian, though. He's an economist. And in his work, Reeves focuses on economic mobility. That is, he crunches numbers about how much money a couple makes, their jobs, their education, where they live, and so on. And then Reeves tries to predict how much money that couple's kids will make. Now, it's important to distinguish this from something you've probably heard a lot about, income inequality, the 1% versus the 99% issue. That's important, says Reeves. But think about this. I think in terms of fairness and certainly in terms of American fairness, the question's less what's the gap between the bottom and the top, and it's more what are your chances of making it from the bottom to the top? How mobile is society? How far does where you're born on the ladder affect where you end up on the ladder? Reeves has come up with his own scale for measuring how easy it is for someone born into poverty to move to better circumstances, to get rich. You take uh, the whole population and divide them up into five equally sized slices. The top 20%, the cream, they're one. In an immobile society, you're born a one, you stay a one. You're born a three, you stay a three. Nicely put. That's a good way to put it, yeah. If you're born a one, you stay a one. You're born a five, you stay a five. So what we know is that of the people who are born in five, about 40% of them will stay in five. Oh, almost half of them will just stay. Right. If your parents were poor, you're likely to end up poor yourself. If your parents were rich, you're pretty likely to end up rich. But of course, what we're very good at, if you're a one, is making sure your kids don't fall. I guess what I'm wondering is, if you're a one, are these people with, like, Rolls Royces? No. no. So, we're talking about the top 20% of the income distribution. That's, that's not a small number, okay? And so, there is a very good chance that uh, people who are listening to this are in that top 20%. If you make $150,000 in a family of four, you are in that top group. You're a one. Sure, there are a lot of people who make a lot more money than that. So think of 150 as the bottom of the top. $150,000 among four people is where the top group starts. 
and it goes up and up from there. Now, there are also some big things holding people back. Four big gaps, says Reeves, keeping people stuck down near the bottom in the group they're born into. What you're seeing is a marriage gap, a neighborhood gap, a race gap, a money gap, and all of those gaps kind of align very strongly with each other. It's not as if each gap is affecting different people. It tends to affect the same people. Let's start with marriage. If you are raised by continuously married parents, you're much more likely to be upwardly mobile than if you're raised by a single parent as one element. And education. If you are low income, then you end up with much lower levels of education. Um, That's true from K all the way through college. Much less likely to go to college, much, much less likely to complete college, even if you do go. A huge factor is race. If you take a black family on average income and a white family on average income, the black family is much more likely to live in a low-income area. The kids are more likely to go to a poorer school. And so even if you make it to the middle class as a black family, you don't necessarily automatically guarantee what we would think of as a middle-class existence for your kids. And then the last thing is geography. A poor neighbourhood tends to kind of produce children who are more likely to be poor as a result of job opportunities, social networks, higher levels of crime and so on. Richard Reeves, are you telling me that the bootstraps narrative we tell ourselves in America, are you coming here as a representative of the crown to tell me that it is not true? (laughs) Uh, I am certainly willing to say that it is much less true than most Americans think that it is. This idea we've got of ourselves that people should just rise, the facts don't support that idea. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. It is astounding how significantly one idea can shape a society and its policies. Consider this one. If taxes on the rich go up, job creation will go down. This idea is an article of faith for Republicans and seldom challenged by Democrats and has indeed shaped much of the economic landscape. But sometimes the ideas that we are certain are true are dead wrong. Consider that for thousands of years, humans believed that the Earth was the center of the universe. It's not. And an astronomer who still believed that it was would do some pretty terrible astronomy. Likewise, a policymaker who believes that the rich are job creators and therefore should not be taxed will do equally terrible policy. I have started or helped start dozens of companies and initially hired lots of people. But if there was no one around who could afford to buy what we had to sell, 
all those companies and all those jobs would have evaporated. That's why I can say with confidence that rich people don't create jobs, nor do businesses, large or small. Jobs are a consequence of a circle of life-like feedback loop between customers and businesses. And only consumers can set in motion this virtuous cycle of increasing demand and hiring. In this sense, an ordinary consumer is more of a job creator than a capitalist like me. That's why when business people take credit for creating jobs, it's a little bit like squirrels taking credit for creating evolution. It's actually the other way around. Anyone who's ever run a business knows that hiring more people is a course of last resort for capitalists. It's what we do if and only if rising consumer demand requires it. And in this sense, calling ourselves job creators isn't just inaccurate, it's disingenuous. That's why our existing policies are so upside down. When the biggest tax exemptions and the lowest tax rates benefit the richest, all in the name of job creation, all that happens is that the rich get richer. Since 1980, the share of income for the top 1% of Americans has more than tripled, while our effective tax rates have gone down by 50%. If it was true that lower taxes for the rich and more wealth for the wealthy led to job creation, today we would be drowning in jobs. And, thank you. <clears throat> and yet, unemployment and underemployment is at record highs. Another reason that this idea is so wrong-headed is that there can never be enough super-rich people to power a great economy. Somebody like me makes hundreds or thousands of times as much as the median American, but I don't buy hundreds or thousands of times as much stuff. My family owns three cars, not 3,000. I buy a few pairs of pants and shirts a year like most American men. Occasionally, we go out to eat with friends. I can't buy enough of anything to make for the fact that millions of unemployed and underemployed Americans can't buy any new cars, any clothes, or enjoy any meals out. Nor can I make up for the falling consumption of the vast majority of middle-class families that are barely squeaking by, buried by spiraling costs and trapped by stagnant or declining wages. Here's an incredible fact, that if the typical American family still retained the same share of income that they did, in 1970, they'd earn like $45,000 more a year. Imagine what our economy would be like if that were the case. Significant privileges have come to people like me, capitalists, for being perceived as job creators at the center of the economic universe and the language and metaphors we use to defend the current economic and social arrangements is telling. It's a small jump from job creator to the creator. This language obviously wasn't... <laughs> This language was not chosen by accident. And it's only honest to admit that when somebody like me calls themselves a job creator, we're not just describing how the economy works, but more particularly, we're making a claim on status and privileges that we deserve. Speaking of special privileges, the extraordinary differential between the 15% tax rate that capitalists pay on carried interest, dividends, and capital gains and the 35% top marginal rate on work that ordinary Americans pay, it's kind of hard to justify without a touch of deification. We've had it backwards for the last 30 years. Rich people like me don't create jobs. 
Jobs are a consequence of an ecosystemic feedback loop between customers and businesses. And when the middle class thrives, businesses grow and hire, and owners profit. That's why taxing the rich to pay for investments that benefit all such a fantastic deal for the middle class and the rich. So ladies and gentlemen, here's an idea worth spreading. In a capitalist economy, the true job creators are middle class consumers. And taxing the rich to make investments that make the middle class grow and thrive is the single shrewdest thing we can do for the middle class, for the poor, and for the rich. Don't you dare speak of the commonwealth Become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire, gate communities The wealthiest anomalies With their own privatized police While the silent majority Will stay for the press Obey the corporate American dream our main story tonight is income inequality. A good way to figure out which side of it you're on is whether you're currently paying for HBO or stealing it. Uh, last, last December, some of you laughed a little too hard at that. L last December, the president made it clear that income inequality was going to be a big priority. The combined trends of increased inequality and decreasing mobility pose a fundamental threat to the American dream our way of life, and what we stand for around the globe. I believe this is the defining challenge of our time. Yes, the defining challenge of our time. Well, well, one of the two defining challenges of our time, the other being Candy Crush Level 97. That is hard. <laughs> I've got a lollipop hammer and I still can't. Uh, the point is that the President said the word inequality 26 times in that speech, which everyone took to mean one thing. Income inequality is going to be the thrust, one of the major themes in 2016. Members of the Senate Democratic leadership team, that's Harry Reid and Dan, are clear, clearly going after this income inequality issue. For Democrats, it's an all-out assault on the issue of income inequality. An all-out assault. You better watch your ass, income inequality, because you're about to get violently ameliorated. <laughs> or you would have been if they hadn't almost immediately backed down. A new article says President Obama appears to be shifting strategy on tackling income inequality. The Washington Post reveals Democrats are split on the issue, leading President Obama to shift talk away from the subject. So basically, income inequality has become just another topic of conversation we prefer to avoid in America, like Japanese internment camps or that time that we gave Roberto Benigni an Academy Award. You know, <laughs> national tragedies, equally wrong. Uh, there, is, there is a key reason why no politician wants to talk about it. And that's because every time someone tries to, this happens. Is President Obama engaging in class warfare? Class warfare. Class warfare. The politics of class warfare. Trying to drive a class warfare argument. Mm. Use that hashtag class warfare. Okay, okay. That all sounds silly, but the phrase class warfare is so toxic, the president actually had to stop talking about the thing he describes as a fundamental threat to the American dream. And this was so predictable that three years ago, he actually gathered a group of historians and told them, what you could do for me 
is to help find a way to discuss the issue of inequality in our society without being accused of class warfare. To which they presumably said, yeah, we can't really help you with that, although we can tell you what Warren G. Harding named his penis. <laughs> it's not what you're thinking. But, but just because politicians can't talk about income inequality doesn't mean we shouldn't. And before we do, let me just say, no one is arguing for complete, perfect equality. We are not going to live in a world where we pretend that all Baldwins are equally talented. <laughs> I mean, look, there's Billy and there's everyone else. That's a fact. <laughs> Inequality is a bit like cinnamon. You definitely want to have a little of it to spice life up a bit, but too much of it can be very dangerous. <laughs> and make no mistake, we are at cinnamon dangerous levels right now. The wealth gap is getting worse. A new analysis shows the richest Americans, the top 1%, made nearly 20% of all the available income in America last year. That's the widest income gap since the roaring 20s. Ooh, okay, nothing ominous there then. Uh, the roaring 20s were famously the party that never ended. That's what made the 30s so great, just more 20s. And, and, and the thing is, income inequality affects everyone. It can actually hinder overall growth. And just to be clear, income inequality is by no means just an American problem. Globalization and technology means that the, the gap is rising all over the developed world. It's just rising faster here. In fact, in the United States, the income ratio between our richest and poorest 10% is now 16 to 1. At this point, the rich are just running up the score. If our economy was a little league game, someone would have called it by now. <laughs> but, but what sets America apart is that in this time, we have actively introduced policies disproportionately benefiting the wealthy, like cutting income tax and capital gains tax rates for the richest in half, as well as uh, that weird tax rebate for orgies with fancy eyes wide shut masks. <laughs> the password is Fidelio. <laughs> you would think you would think, in a democracy, policies that benefit very few people at the expense of very many would not be able to succeed, but they have. And I think the reason for that may lie somewhere in America's greatest quality, optimism. It's basically in how susceptible Americans are to this. We have never been a nation of haves and have-nots. We are a nation of haves and soon-to-haves, of people who have made it and people who will make it. Yes! I mean, I mean, no, no, hold on. That sounds great. The problem is, it makes no sense. Economically, mathematically, or even grammatically. And yet we believe him. We believe him. And there's a poll that I think explains why. A few months ago, Pew Research revealed that 65% of Americans believe the wealth gap is increasing, and 60% believe our system unfairly favors the wealthy. But, and here's the key, 60% also believe that most people who work hard enough can make it. Or in other words, yeah, I can clearly see this game is rigged, which is what's going to make it so sweet when I win this thing! <laughs> Woo! That, and it's good! That's a good thing! That, that optimism is one of the things I love the most about this country. I love that you line up around the block for TV talent shows, for talents you objectively don't have. And, and everyone feels bad when a person who is inevitably and revealingly British does this to you.
It sounded like two three-year-olds who've got flu trying to sing. I didn't find it funny, and I like to laugh, and that wasn't funny to me. I don't know what that style was. It started off like bad food poisoning. Without any doubt, the worst act I've probably ever seen. You may want to be smart and start acting like an arrogant Your mashed potatoes are bland. <laughs> wow! Wow! Hold on! British person just told you your mashed potatoes were bland. That has got to hurt. The reason a British person has to do that is that we're raised in a rigid class system where we have all hope beaten out of us. And your optimism is overwhelmingly positive, except, except when it leads you to act against your own best interests. Look at the federal estate tax. That's the tax that gets paid on inherited wealth. It helps to limit the terrible possibility of a permanent landed gentry. The idea that a house can be passed down through the generations until some dipshit blows the fortune on a Canadian railway company, you fucking moron! How could you do that, Lord Grantham? The family was counting on you! How could you? And yet, the estate tax here is routinely on the verge of being abolished. Politicians call it the death tax and get applause for saying things like this. My own view is we ought to kill the death tax. You paid for that farm once, you shouldn't have to pay for it again. Except it's almost impossible that a farmer would ever have to do that. The federal estate tax does not apply to 99.4% of all farm estates. It also doesn't apply to 99.86% of anyone's estates. Basically, if you're not comfortable calling your accumulation of shit an estate, the estate tax probably doesn't fucking apply to you. And yet, the thing is, a man worth a quarter of a billion dollars gets applause for saying, let's get rid of it. Under current federal law, heirs don't have to pay taxes on the first 5.3 million that you leave them. Meaning that you and your wife can leave your kid more than 10 million dollars tax-free. And relax, that is more than enough to turn Chauncey into the world's biggest piece of shit. <laughs> F*** you, Chauncey! No 16-year-old has a destination birthday party! The tax on estates over $5 million applies to almost nobody. But one reason it's constantly threatened is that people assume that it will one day apply to them. I don't have a $5 million estate. I'd like to someday. But if I work all my life and I pay my taxes on my income and then I die and I want to pass on what would be great if it were a $5 million estate to my kids, why should I pay the government again? But you won't be paying it! You'll be gone! In fact, this is the practical embodiment of everything you want. This is the government literally taking your money over your dead body. <laughs> and also... Also, let's be clear. Let's be clear. The existence of an estate tax has not prevented Americans from passing on a f**kload of wealth. Of the billionaires on the Forbes 400, 71 inherited their fortune and another 56 inherited at least a portion of it. That's nearly a third of the list. And our habit of handing money down from generation to generation perpetuates another disparity, perhaps explaining why, of the Forbes 400, only 0.25% are African American. And to answer your question, yes, it's Oprah. Oprah is the person. <laughs> you were right. Good guess. Good guess. America now has a system where wealth is essentially dispersed as a lottery of birth. 
And maybe the reason we seem to accept that is that even though we know the odds are stacked against us, we all think we're going to win the lottery. <laughs> Experts even appear on TV advising us how to handle our future winnings. Well, I think the first thing should be to create a plan. Set up a trust, probably hire a couple of security guards. Do you take the lump sum payment or the 29-year uh, annuity payment over time? I would take the one-time okay. cash chunk because it allows you to do a whole bunch of things that you might want to do in your life. If you win that kind of money and you still have young children, make sure you put it in a trust. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> because it is never too early to start protecting your imaginary lottery winnings <laughs> from crippling estate taxes. It's, that's crazy. You might as well do an eight-minute segment on how to handle being attacked by a shark while scoring the winning touchdown at the Super Bowl. <laughs> or things to say on your third date with Beyonce. <laughs> and, and watch... Watch how... It would be great. That would be great. And, there's a chance. Technically, there's a chance. And, and watch how depressed we get by useful, practical advice. Would you tell people, maybe take your $5 you're going to spend on the jackpot and put it elsewhere? If you can invest that money 20, 30 years down the road, that is going to be uh, a much better, there'd be much better odds of having a secure retirement than hoping on the lottery. It's not nearly as fantasy, though. No, it's not. It's so much more practical. Please. Please don't mess up this financial segment with practical advice. We're Dreamweavers here at News Team 12. Take that shit over to News Team 5. Look, look. The whole point is, if American wealth is a lottery, we are increasingly playing two different games. In fact, I'll show you. Who wants to play America Ball? Okay. As always, we have two drawings. First up, the draw for people with inherited wealth. You should all have a ticket at home with a number between one and three on it. So let's pick two balls. Let's pick two balls. Fire it up. Here we go. Three. The first number is three. Let's pick another ball. One. Congratulations to almost everyone at home. Okay, that was fun. That was fun. Okay, so now, now the lottery for those who were born poor. Okay. Tank. Uh, hello to all of you watching at home or through a Best Buy window. Uh, you should, you should all have a card with a number between one and three and a half million on it. And uh, you've probably noticed that a disproportionate percentage of these balls are black and brown. Ignore that; it's illustrative of nothing. I can't stress that enough. Isn't that right, Tane? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, now, now, as you can see, for the third consecutive week, this machine is still broken, so I can't currently get a ball out of there for you. But let's all agree that technically, you did all have the hypothetical chance to win. So, this is depressing. Um, hey, hey, remember how much fun we were having over there? Let's go back over! There's still a ball in there! Let's get that last ball out of there! Just one more! Oh, number two! You're all winners! All of you, you can't lose! The system works! If you're getting sad, you're just thinking of this the wrong way. Remember, when it comes to the wealth lottery, America is a nation of winners and soon to winners. Yes. If we were playing cards, you'd be the one to do. We'd play with loaded dice and fix a roulette wheel. You'd pick them at the races like I've never seen. And then you'd make me pay off like a slot machine. Head you win, tells I lose. Head you win, tells I lose. Bad news.
me, honey. Take my money. You know the odds are yours. So flip the coin. McClatchy's Kevin Hall had some conventional wisdom to drop February 2nd. Quote, few things defy gravity more than federal spending. In the nation's capital, what goes up does not come down. It goes up more, close quote. Well, sort of. The U.S. population grows every year, and its economy grows on top of that most years. So it would be surprising if the real expenditures of the U.S. government didn't generally get bigger and not smaller over time. A more reasonable indicator might be federal spending as a percentage of the U.S. economy. And that, contrary to Hall's lead, does go up and down. It was 22.3% of GDP in 1982 and 17.4% in 2000. At the height of World War II, the last time the U.S. faced a serious military threat, federal spending topped out at 40.7% of GDP. It's true that the proportion of the U.S. economy devoted to federal spending increased markedly as Washington took on responsibility for ensuring retirement, that's Social Security, and health care for the elderly, or Medicare. These programs are very popular because they're very successful at doing what they're intended to do, which is reducing the chances that our grandparents, our parents, and finally ourselves will end our lives in poverty, sickness, and misery. Some would see this as a good thing, but not Hall. He quotes austerity advocate Rudolf Penner's statement that about half our spending these days is going to Social Security and various health programs, and most of these are extraordinarily popular politically. And then he adds in his own voice, quote, therein rests the problem with federal spending. It's hard to cut programs that have a constituency with a vested interest, close quote. Well, Yes, and it's not that the country can't afford to keep supporting its elderly in the not particularly generous manner that it does today. Hall throws out some big debt projection numbers that shrink on examination. Obama's budget plan would move the federal government's share of the economy from 20.9% today to 22.2% in 2024, a trivial redistribution of what is expected to be a much larger economic pie. But then redistributing that pie would mean taking back a small fraction of the enormous gains that the very wealthy have made over the past 40 years. And if there's one thing that journalists, whose job it is to explain the economy to the rest of us, are paid to understand, it's that the rich getting richer is meant to be a one-way street.
Democrats may not have much recourse against the Republican plan to uh, make a, a rule change to Social Security disability benefits that might drastically cut those benefits starting next year, according to congressional aides. There's this new legislative rule that's been pushed through with very little notice last week, which would prohibit a routine transfer to the Social Security Disability Trust Fund, which is expected to be depleted late 2016. Now remember, the Disability Trust Fund is different than benefits for retirees. The Disability Trust Fund is, as the name suggests, for those on Social Security disability. And without an injection of capital, from the main Social Security Retirement Fund, the disability program would have to cut benefits by some 20%, 20% potentially. The undertone to all of this is a common refrain from the right. These benefits are being abused. People who are not really disabled, people who can work are receiving these benefits, etc., etc. And the saddest part about this proposal from the right, which Democrats may not be able to do anything about, is that it would do nothing to cut down on fraud, which is what Republicans claim is really the problem here, because all it will do is cut benefits. It will prevent those on Social Security disability from receiving 100% of the money they do now. They would only receive around 80% of that money, but it wouldn't change who receives it. And it seems to me, Lewis, like if you're trying to cut down on fraud, then you would approach this from the angle of, how does someone qualify for disability rather than from the angle of let's just not fund benefits at all? I think I think there are a lot of Republicans who would like to see entitlements just completely disappear. Yeah. Uh, and that's really the goal here. I think talking about about fraud is just uh, is just deflecting, is just uh, trying to take people's attention away from that. And let's really dig down here and think about this for a second, because uh, if you actually consider, first of all, that any social welfare program will have some free riders, some people receiving benefits who uh, uh, don't deserve them, and I use that term deserve sort of loosely, consider the economic benefit that we receive from all of the people that do receive this money, number one, and number two, consider the cost of additional scrutiny. If you have, as we saw with these policies that want to drug test welfare recipients, very often the percentage of welfare recipients on drugs is so low that the cost to administer the tests exceeds that being paid in terms of benefits to those who don't deserve the benefits. So it may not even be fiscally conservative to add further scrutiny to Social Security disability. It may, it may not though, and we need to be open to that possibility. I wish I knew more than my father before me. Just like most podcasts, this show is sponsored by Audible, where you can get hundreds of thousands of audiobooks, radio shows, audio versions of periodicals, and more. You can get a free book of your choice by going to audiblepodcast.com slash best, which you can also find linked up on my website. I'm currently reading Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, and I highly recommend it to anyone interested in getting a new perspective on how American society got to where it is today. Audible is selling this book for almost $90, but it can be yours for free by signing up at audiblepodcast.com slash best. So check it out, read along with me if you like, and let me know what you think. 
What is the fetish with cutting Social Security benefits from both parties? Do they expect people to work until death or uh, that disabled people are bums? What is the political upside? It is just because, basically, I think some of it is just sort of sadistic. I think like they, none of them have stake in uh, having retirement insurance. They feel that it's like laziness. They just feel that it's just, it really, I think it's, it is, and I think the fact that they think it is not politically um, palatable to 80% of the people, I think, makes them feel like they're doing the morally right thing. I mean, this is how sort of twisted, I really do think it is twisted, really just mentally twisted. I think, you know, for a lot of these guys, too, there is like value in getting rid of Social Security. Uh, you know, they may have an interest in it so far as like it would help uh, the stock market or uh, they uh, feel that it would be a way of of making sure that uh, they don't pay further taxes. Uh, but I think a lot of it is just, I think it is psychologically twisted. I think it's also that Social Security is basically just this living, breathing rebuke to so much lazy ideological verbiage about from all, I mean, from the right, obviously, because it's a successful government program. Right. But That's also, obvious. but also on the, like, the kind of third way, center left, like, we need to reinvent government. Everything needs to be more complicated and more complex. There needs to be public-private partnerships and all. And you know, maybe that's true in some instances. But you have this system that is so simple. It's been around since you know the Roosevelt era, and it works. But when you're talking about chain CPI, you're not you're not talking about impacting the system. No, but you're talking about why there's such an obsession with trimming it and changing it. Yeah, and well, I no, think no, but that there the, is trimming and changing are two different things. And so like, you know, I mean, I've had uh, you know, when we debated Jonathan Alter, I think it was about Medicare maybe it was on this uh, program. That was about the, everything. But yeah, I Medicare mean, and Social Security. There's just a sense of like, look, people are living longer, which is which is for for the people who need Social Security the most. Not the case. But even even if I was to stipulate that, yes, everybody's living six or seven years longer. They, I would say, so what? So what, what? I mean, why wouldn't we want the advancement of society progression of time to mean that people can don't have to work for the for the same percentage of their life and then their response would be it's not viable it is it is the the program cannot sustain it and then my response to that would be talk to me when we are at traditional levels of income capture in other words the program has traditionally captured 90% of uh, income uh, uh, generated by Americans, and we're now down to like 83%. And then they would say, well, come on, Sam. Don't be so... Well, I, I, I also think the other thing is that Everybody has a, has a tendency to extrapolate their small world, and that's why it's it matters more when people who are in positions of power do it. And they, it, it it's like... 
I've also heard people almost talk about cutting Social Security along the lines of like, well, it's such an insignificant amount of money anyways. And right. people have, they have all sorts of other streams of revenue for their retirement. And all this will do is just sort of help the budget and, you know, it doesn't make a difference to real people because obviously they have retirement funds. Well, that's and they what I'm have, saying. They're yeah, out of touch. They, yeah, they, they don't have any skin out of it. They, they have yeah, no, well, no. and they don't have any desire to sort of empathize or see what life is like for most people. That's why I think it's sort of an emotional issue. Uh, or I should say just a mental issue. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, bolstering unemployment benefits with the 2016 budget. Now, although I would rather personally overturn the apple cart and rebuild within a completely different economic paradigm, I will take incremental progress over the status quo any day. And as long as we have a fundamentally broken economic system, I would still prefer for that broken system to reduce as much suffering as possible given its systemic limitations. And now with that in mind, let's talk about bolstering unemployment benefits. As a whole, the budget is solid enough that the typically critical folks at Common Dreams are actually fans of what they've been doing so far. Dave Johnson describes the White House's move to the left and the end of the austerity mindset still reigning from the sequester this way, quote, President Obama is using his bully pulpit to push the country in a new direction. The president has submitted a budget that calls for more public investment in vital areas and pays for it with more taxes on the wealthy. He has drawn a dividing line between a Reaganomics era of trickle-down favors for the wealthy combined with cuts, austerity, and intentional economic pain and harm, and a return to an era of a government that does things that make people's lives better, unquote. A large part of making people's lives better is redesigning triggers that kick in unemployment insurance benefits so that they are available early enough in a downturn and don't require action by Congress, which typically comes after a recession is in full swing. The unemployment reform even has bipartisan roots, something that may make you cringe but is necessary with a Republican-controlled Congress. Also, the plan makes sense. As Danny Vinnick writes at the New Republic, quote, the plan has two components. One would offer states financial rewards for changing the eligibility criteria so that more people who work part-time or who work on and off are eligible for benefits. The second part would encourage states to implement programs to promote re-employment. States that offer the unemployment relocation vouchers to move where jobs are more widely available, an idea that Republican Senator John Thune proposed in 2014. States could also support more more extensive reemployment services and job training programs, unquote. So if your job is actually gone and not just downsized or restructured, you could get help learning new skills. And if your job hops a state border or too many towns over to commute, you could get a hand relocating. This seems like common sense, not just because it's helpful, but because getting people employed quickly is less expensive than long-term unemployment or social programs. It should be win-win from any perspective. Luckily, we have enough time before the budget will hit the floor to make the unemployment boost popular, giving opinion poll cover to the White House and creating a PR nightmare for conservative Congress members who would lobby to nix it. You can call the White House and let the president know you support an uncompromised budget with none of the unemployment 
Reformed bargained away in the months to come. Their number is 202-456-1111. You can always tweet to at White House and at Barack Obama to leave a public comment that encourages others to do the same. Information on writing and emailing the White House can be found at whitehouse.gov slash contact. Then use contactingthecongress.org to let your representatives in Congress know you support the provisions of the 2016 budget and you expect them to publicly do the same. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Act tab at bestofleft.com. If a solid, sensible safety net matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the White House unemployment insurance reforms via social media so that others in your network can get on board. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed Weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now Cause that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change Is charity in general, and the welfare system in particular, is this just a roundabout way of preserving capitalism keeping our system going? I think the question is excellent, and I think the basic answer is yes. And I want to go into it because I think at this time of year when we are asked to give charity so much, when we are asked to make donations, as I just did too, uh, to think a little bit about the kind of donations and charity and welfare that basically go to people who are poor. They're either poor because they don't have work or they're poor because the work pays them so badly that they are left in basic need. What functions are served by providing free help, food, clothing, money, whatever form it takes, privately given charity or publicly organized welfare? First, and I'm going to go through the four basic ones just to have them clear in everyone's mind. First, you prevent revolution this way. It's been well understood ever since the German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck star started modern welfare systems and even further back in terms of private charity. If you don't help people with nothing, then they have nothing to lose. And at that point, their desperation, their resentment, their anger at the injustices they've suffered and the poverty they have to endure and the, the health and death it threatens in them can make them very bitter, very angry, and very socially disruptive. And one of the functions of charity and one of the functions of welfare has always been to keep the poor from becoming revolutionaries and rebels. Give them something to lose. Make them dependent. Second function. No sooner is a welfare system set up than a struggle begins between the people in the middle and the people at the top about who's going to pay the costs of providing food, clothing, shelter, welfare to poor people. And given the power wielded by the richest, 
given the power wielded by the corporations, you can be quite sure that sooner or later they will shift more and more of the cost of welfare and of charity onto the middle and lower classes. That creates then a burden for the middle and lower classes and a resentment on their part against the poor because they have to pay for it. And this divides middle and lower income people on the one hand from the poor. And that creates tensions between them and they fight and are bitter against each other than they could be as allies to change the system so they wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. So it's a kind of social control mechanism that sets one part of the working class that has a job and has an income against the other part that doesn't have a job or doesn't have a decent income. Third function performed by welfare and charity. It is to keep those who get it in a very dependent and unattractive state. You go to where welfare recipients mostly live, you see it. You look at the clothes they wear, the food they eat, the opportunities they don't have, the neighborhoods they live in, so forth and so on. And it's kind of a lesson, isn't it? It's a way of terrorizing, scaring working people by saying, you all know where in your town to go to see what it's like if you don't keep your job, if you don't keep your income. So behave properly, do what the boss tells you, because if you don't have a job, you will live like them. And so there's a function of disciplining the workforce that part that's actually working and has a decent income by constantly showing them how unattractive life would be if they had to live like those on welfare. And finally, by having a, the welfare folks isolated, living in poor conditions, it becomes easier to depict their problem as their own fault not the problem of a society that hasn't got jobs for the people who live in it, that doesn't pay decent income for work done. No, no, no. You're not supposed to think that the problem lies in a system. You're supposed to blame the victim of a system that doesn't provide work. That's why the answer to charity and welfare is not to give more or less of it, which is the debate we have so often. The real answer, if you don't deny the problem in the economics of denial, is to recognize what the solution obviously is, which is give everybody a job and give them a job at a decent income. That's what the people on welfare want. That's what they've always wanted. They don't want to be looked down on. They don't want to live apart. They don't want to live in those conditions. The notion that they wouldn't give that up because they don't want to work is a fantasy of denial on the part of the people who don't want to face the fact that they live in an economic system that is so irrational that it keeps people from working and then gives them the food, clothing, and shelters that survive without working. You know, there's a simple law in economics. If the people on welfare who are able, who are not ill or incapacitated somehow, obviously we're not talking about them, but if the 
the able-bodied people on welfare, without work, who number in the millions in the United States and in many other countries, if they were given work, then the money they got, the pay, the decent pay, would be more than compensated by the fruits of their labor. We would be better off because what we, those who are working, give to those who have no jobs, if we employ them, what we give them as a wage is then repaid by the, the goods and services they produce. When they're on welfare, we give them food, clothing, and shelter, but we don't get much back, do we? It's irrational not to put folks to work. And do we have the raw materials, tools, and equipment? The Federal Reserve of the United States says 20% of our tools, equipment, and raw materials are sitting idle. So if you're wondering, is there the machinery, are there the raw materials for them to work with? The answer is an unqualified yes. Are there good things to do in our society? Another unqualified yes. Rebuild our cities provide real daycare, take care of the old people, we have a list as long as your arm. But this is a system that can't work this out, that doesn't provide work to the people who want it, that doesn't provide a decent income to the people who need it, and then turns around and to keep them docile, gives them welfare, which they don't need, makes them a community apart, undermines their self-esteem. This is a system that doesn't work and nothing shows it so much as this crazy idea of not giving people work who want it, work that would give us the fruits of their labor, which, by the way, in this country would be in the trillions of dollars, and instead condemns a part of the population to live the life of welfare recipient pauper. Nothing indicts capitalism as starkly as that irrationality. Jay, this is Chrissy from Kansas, and I'm calling because I wanted to share something with you that ties together two of your recent episodes, the PPP episode and the LGBTQ rights episode, and in an interesting way that generally people may not consider. So I went to the Creating Change Conference in Denver, Colorado this year, which is the largest LGBTQ and ally activist conference in the country. A lot of the programming discussed the intersections of queerness and other activist causes like politics, race, education, policing, things along those lines. But during one of the plenary sessions, the president of the CWA Union, Communication Workers of America, came onto the stage and showed the Robert Wright video that you played on your TVP show. I'm not exaggerating when they say that easily half of the audience wandered out within the first few minutes of his presentation. By the time he was finished, the auditorium was mostly empty. And it was probably because nobody realizes that the TVP is a thing that even people in the LGBTQ community really need to care about. The CWA has a website the CWA website has a handout that expresses why, titled The Trans-Pacific Partnership Threatens the LGBTQ Community, which says the TPP would provide big benefits and access to the U.S. market for the 11 nation partners with others hoping to join. That means that countries like Brunei and Malaysia would be rewarded despite laws that subject lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people to horrific abuse and even death because of who they are. 
To further the point that the opposition to the TPP isn't only about trade, there was an article posted in the Huffington Post on the 19th by Eleanor Smeal titled, Trade Must Not Trump Women's Human Rights, which states the following. The new Vernon Penal Code, which will be implemented in phases, calls for fines and imprisonment for women who become pregnant outside of marriage, women who have abortion, for adultery, and for so-called indecent behavior. It also threatens men and women who pose as someone of the opposite sex with similar punishments. The Sultan of Brunei launched the first phase of the Penal Code on May 1st, 2014, but the worst is yet to come. Once the code is fully implemented, women who engage in same-sex sexual relations could be whipped, fined, or imprisoned. The code will also impose flogging or death by stoning for men engaging in sex with men and for extramarital sex between men and women. Flogging can lead to permanent injury and death. Stoning, another horrific practice, often consists of burying a person so that the head is exposed and then pelting that individual to death. The reality is women are more likely to be victims of stoning because of deep-seated gender bias and discrimination. So basically, the Trans-Pacific Partnership is even worse than you thought it was, and if anybody listening to this hasn't signed a letter to your legislators telling them to stop the fast track and to say no to the TPP, then please, for the love of human rights, get on that. Thanks, and have a great day. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. And now I actually have more voicemails for you, but these two require uh, you know direct comment. So you know I'll get to them now, but. First, the story on this one, the, the first we're going to hear is from Jeff. I have received four voicemails from Jeff in the past uh, you know, week or so on the topic of vaccinations, depending, three or four, depending on how you're counting. The, the fourth seems to mostly just be an angry message about the fact that I hadn't put any of his messages on the show yet. And so this one, I, I seriously considered playing this message on the previous episode and I didn't because I knew I'd have to respond to it, and I decided I preferred to use that time in the previous episode to read an Onion article than respond to Jeff about vaccinations, and so I just said, well, I'll probably put it in the next episode. So then today I got an angry message from him about how I'm not playing his messages, so anyways, th that's the framework that this is coming from. Of the three messages he left, I feel like this one is representative of you know the points he wanted to get across, so I'll address them as we go. Hi, how are you? This is Jeff Carlton Williams. We're calling a response to the rape in Kentucky. And the topic that she brought up was something that she mentioned that a lot of the anti-vax reason for not wanting to have the MMR vaccine is due to they believe there's a risk of autism. And I just want to stress that that's not the core reason why a lot of people choose not to vaccinate. One of the main reasons that a lot of people don't like the fact that they're putting viruses from an animal, a barnyard animal, mixed with formaldehyde and several other chemicals inside their system. Many people believe that this can contribute to some of the increased amount of food allergies that we're having with kids and several other allergies that you're seeing in children today. Also, a lot of people believe that the reason why a lot of these childhood diseases are no longer as 
rampant as they've been in the past because we also have something called increased sanitation. People are exercising more and they eating better diets. People are washing their hands more now than what they did back in the day when you had several of these childhood diseases wiping out entire population. This is actually going to be sort of minor in the scope of things, but I just want to point out my discomfort with his repeated use of framing arguments as many people believe or lots of people believe. He's not exactly even making an argument. It sounds like he's trying to explain the actions of others, which is fine, I guess. But anything that starts with many people believe is treading dangerously close to a very famous logical fallacy. It's called argumentum ad populum, Latin for appeal to the people, which is an argument that concludes that a proposition is true because many or most people believe it to be true, which is not at all how logic works. Uh, Bill O'Reilly himself actually made this one famous to me, and I don't know if he said this recently, but he used to say that he must be correct because he got better ratings than his competitors who were saying something different from him. So if he had higher ratings, then he must be more correct, which is clearly not true. So minor point, but wanted to throw that in. Now, with that being said, I, I have not, uh, I, I do not endorse somebody to not vaccinate. I endorse choice. And I am a physician. And I've done my research. And in the research that I've done, but what I've read is that a lot of the vaccines people are taking today are not necessary. Some of them are, some of them are not. But each parent should have that choice. If they believe that their child is at risk of death or illness or a reaction to these vaccines, they should have the choice to say, no to the vaccine. Now let me just pause for a moment and point out at this point in the conversation, Jeff is not like in another universe from where I am on this topic. You know, he and I sit down over a coffee and discuss vaccines. You know, we're probably not going to come to a perfect consensus, but you know, we're having a reasonable conversation on the topic. He's not he's not completely out there. But he is about to jump off the cliff. And you remember something. They call it per resistance. Remember one thing. She in a herd. That is unbelievable. What are you doing? That is embarrassing. That wasn't even a logical fallacy. That wasn't an attempt at an argument. That was just wordplay, and, and not even like clever wordplay. That was pathetically sophomoric wordplay. I, I can't believe that you would even try to make that as an argument. And to be clear, he called in three times total. He made that point twice, so he clearly thinks that it's something that needs to, you know, be expressed and is either uh, a good argument or just clever or I don't know what. But that is sad, and I, I mean, I have no way of knowing whether he's actually a physician as he claims, but that scares the shit out of me that he thought that that was a good argument that needed to be uh, put across. But it gets just a little bit better immediately after claiming that anyone who believes in herd immunity is a sheep, he goes on to say this. Sheep flock in a herd, okay? And I also appreciate not doing the name calling of people who choose not the vaccine. All right, thank you very much. And I enjoy your show, Jay. Now, I can't think of a much better irony than stating that if you believe in the science and the concept of herd immunity, then you're a sheep, and immediately following that up with a request to refrain from name-calling. That was just 
beautiful. Now, the second message is from Todd in California, and I realized after I heard his message, and he also posted on the website, and I read that, and I realized I've had a conversation with this guy. I've had an email exchange with him, and actually ended up on the phone with him once, and he seemed like a perfectly lovely guy. I have no reason to doubt him when he says he is a proud liberal. So I just want to be clear that I am preparing to eviscerate his argument, but that doesn't mean I think he's a bad guy necessarily. I just think that he is incredibly, if not dangerously wrong in how he has chosen to frame the argument he's making. Hey, Jay, this is Todd from California, a uh, long-time listener, proud liberal, but uh, I do wish that people would stop throwing the 25% gender wage gap number around as if it applied to like for like, hour for hour work, it does not. The 25% number is real. It's, there's broad consensus on it, but it doesn't take into account hours worked. It doesn't take into account a lot of things. People should look at the studies. When you get down to like for like, hour for hour work, you're gonna find a gender wage gap of about 5%. So let's work with that. Now, I'm going to pause here to take the first issue first, and to be clear, I am not angry with Todd yet. What he is saying is technically true, although his conclusions aren't quite right, but the numbers he's, he's giving are perfectly fine, that uh, basically men make more money because they work more hours, and so it's reasonable that they make more money. And that is supported by the numbers that, uh, so I, I found an article that says uh, almost 20% of American men worked 50 hours or more per week in the year 2000 compared to only 7% of women, and the extra hours result in an extra 6% in hourly wages across all occupations. So, okay, what uh, Todd is arguing is that when you drill down into the numbers, and he went into a lot more detail on what he wrote on the website, when you drill into the numbers, you get the hard black and white results that, you know, the sexism definitely accounts for some of the wage gap, but the hours gap is responsible for a lot of the wage gap. So sexism is part of it, but the hours gap is a bigger part of it, so we shouldn't conflate the two. Now, on this show, I like to complicate issues, find the nuances of issues, find the intersectionality between issues whenever possible. And so, as part of this article I found, uh, the title of which is Men Work Longer Hours Than Women, Gender Pay Gap Explained? And they lay out that men uh, work more hours than women, and they go on to say this. While the study found that overtime expectations are gender neutral, with employers not specifying separate expectations for their male and female employees, nor systematically rewarding men who overwork more than women, it suggests that the ability for staff to work longer hours rests on a foundation that is itself highly gendered. In other words, those employees who work longer hours do so only with the support of other household members, usually women, who shoulder the lion's share of household duties. Other factors that contributed to this include the fact that women are less likely to choose positions where longer hours are embedded in the organizational culture, and the fact that they are responsible for the majority of housework and childcare, and therefore cannot offer as much of their time to outside hours and paid work. 
and the extra hours are significant not only for extra pay but for career progression, the research suggests that the disparity in overtime not only widens the gender pay gap by 10%, but those who work more overtime are more likely to end up at the top of the corporate ladder because employers are likely to view these employees as hardworking and more deserving of leadership positions. So when Todd writes seven paragraphs on my website about the black and white hard facts of the numbers and how if you only do the research yourself and you find the studies and you drill into the data, then you will find that 20% of the wage gap is due to men working more and women working less and only 5% might be due to sexism. He's missing the entire point of how sexism is integral to why men work more hours to begin with. The other thing I want to throw out, I'd like to invite people to uh, take the gender wage gap in context with the gender wealth gap. Women, get ready to be surprised, I think, when you find out that you actually have more money than men. 51.3% of the wealth in the United States is controlled by women. I have to pause right here to point out that that is the key word. He said that women control money, which is very, very different from owning it. Uh, there's no study that I could find that comes anywhere close to suggesting that women, single or married, have a greater net worth than their average male counterparts. What he is referring to is the fact that in a married couple, women make more decisions about how money is spent. So he's equating women in the context of a marriage who manage the family finances with women actually having a personal net worth greater than men. To be clear, this is where I start to get incredibly angry, and it's going to get worse in a minute. White American women are the single largest economic demographic in the world. I did try to keep it under two minutes. I we won't bore you with, you know, giving support for these facts, but just go and do some actual uh, reading online. Look into the studies. Find the studies that support the wage gap. Find the ones that dispel it, and then compare them side by side and see which one do you think was more rigorously uh, studied. Uh, if I've got anything wrong, I want to be the first to hear about it. So let the hate mail fly. You see, when you start out an argument with a foundational premise that a woman has to be in a relationship with a man in order to close the wealth gap, you simply must know as a proud liberal that you're on very shaky, if not actually misogynistic ground. I mean, I get that you're framing it in terms that are palatable to you. You're trying to point out something that benefits women, that they actually control a lot of money if you look at the data with your eyes squinted and your head cocked just so. But you must see how much you sound like a 1950s home ec film strip teaching young women how to find a rich husband in order to achieve financial stability. I mean, in fact, your argument really isn't very far away from what I found Phyllis Shafley, the famous conservative anti-feminist, talking about in an article today. She argues the wage gap is actually good for women because, quote, 
While women prefer to have a higher-earning partner, men generally prefer to be the higher-earning partner in a relationship. This simple but profound difference between the sexes has powerful consequences for the so-called pay gap. Suppose the pay gap between men and women were magically eliminated. If that happened, simple arithmetic suggests that half of women would be unable to find what they regard as a suitable mate. Obviously, I'm not saying women won't date or marry lower-earning men only that they probably prefer not to. If a higher-earning man is not available, many women are more likely not to marry at all." Unquote. And now, just as with the fact that men work more hours, the established paradigm of both men and women feeling that men should earn more money in a relationship isn't an immutable difference between men and women. It is a result of thousands of years of sexism in Western culture. So her argument, like your argument, Todd, that sexism isn't actually so bad, is built on a foundation of sexism itself, and without that foundation of sexism, it falls apart completely. So when you talk about women, quote, controlling so much money in America, it makes me wonder, just off the top of my head, what about women who never want to get married? What about women who want to get married but aren't yet? What about women who are married to other women? What about stay-at-home mothers whose husbands divorce them, forcing them to re-enter their workforce at a severe disadvantage after not having held a job for many years? Need I go on? If part of the point of feminism is to help women gain their full independence from and attain equality with men, then how could you possibly think it's appropriate to artificially inflate the average net worth of women by rhetorically making them dependent on the incomes of their husbands you assume them all to have or even want? I started this by saying that his framing of this argument was actually dangerous, and that's because it is incredibly wrong while still almost sounding plausible if you don't think about it too hard. You know, he claims to have irrefutable data and very confidently stated that women actually control more money than men. So if a person is a men's rights activist or something close to it and is predisposed to disbelieve feminist claims of systemic sexism and is always looking for holes in feminist arguments, then they will latch on to the types of claims Todd was making, except they won't give it the critical eye that I did, leading them to become even more entrenched in their twisted belief that women actually have all the benefits in society society, and men are being structurally oppressed. So I have no reason to believe that Todd is actually one of those people, but he is certainly doing their dirty work for them. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside Inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so tra-